Hey folks, and welcome to the third SFD short. Like all the shorts, this one doesn't really need much of an intro, but I wanted to give you a quick update on the progress of the longer shows on Iran. When I start the research for the big episodes, I grab every book I can, and then I mine their notes for the newspaper articles and magazine pieces, and even the maps and photos and sometimes the music that I want to use. And while I read through all of those, I copy out sections into a huge OneNote file, and at the same time I use Excel to make a timeline of every date I run into, from the little stuff to the big, and not necessarily just in Iran. During the time period of this next section, the reign of the Shah, the Algerian War for Independence with the French breaks out and finishes, the French lose the Battle of Dien Bien Phu and their colonial war for Indochina, which the U.S. picks up quietly in the 1950s, expands in the 1960s, and loses in the 1970s. The U.S. reaches a stalemate in Korea. John F. Kennedy gets elected and assassinated. Martin Luther King gets assassinated, and Bobby Kennedy follows. American liberalism disgraces itself in the riots at the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1968, and Mexican socialism does the same thing with the massacres in Tlatelolco in the same year. Man goes to the moon, and Keith Moon dies. And when the timeline is done, I take these notes in the Excel file and I make an outline, and I fill it up with what I hope is the bare minimum of quotes that I've pulled from all of the sources. And it still always, always ends up too long. The document for this next period of Iranian history, which I'd wanted to breeze through in about 45 minutes, is 90 pages or so. And once that outline's done, I sit down and I write for 6 or 8 hours a day, until the script is finished. And usually from the moment I start typing to the moment the show is uploaded is about two weeks, maximum three. But in the last month here, I've driven across the country twice for work, played baseball and celebrated Easter in the desert in Durango, gotten food poisoning and had my rib broken at a ska concert, watched one of my favorite Mexican cousins get married, and bargained seriously for an inheritance from one of my girlfriend's uncles. I've been doing pretty much what anybody in Mexico should be doing, and what I, in Mexico, can't seem to avoid doing. So the show's taking a while. But right now I'm 20 pages into the script and I'm hoping I can keep the total below 80 or so, which means I should be done this week. And then it's a hop and a skip to getting it to you. So in the meantime, I hope you're liking these little guys, and sometime this week or the next, I'm going to be having a live conversation with a guy named Robert Morris that'll become its own third kind of episode here on SFD. Robert's a really smart dude, and he runs a YouTube channel called the More Freedom Foundation. I'll link you to him in the show page, but his current project is a series of short videos called Everybody's Lying About Islam, and if you've got 15 minutes a week to be enlightened, go look him up and listen to one or three. Keep your eyes open on SFDs or my social media, and I'll let you know how you can catch us on YouTube Live and when the recording will be up on our site. For now, though, I'll get back to the point. We're talking about historical forgetfulness. I'm John Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to yes, our progress has been uneven. The work of democracy has always been hard. It's always been contentious. Sometimes it's been bloody. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. I would remind you that scripture tells us that blessed are the peacemakers. I want to underscore the word makers. 
And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? Now let's set the record straight. There's no argument over the choice between peace and war. In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. I started SFD because I wanted people to remember. I don't want so much to teach people with the show, or to try to teach people with the show but to remind them of their own history. Because we Americans, as a people, are forgetful. Inasmuch as we've made learning from your mistakes a kind of cultural mantra in our day-to-day lives, as a country, we've always refused to do it. And not just our own mistakes. In the series I'm doing right now, Eisenhower and the administrations after him had the long-running example of the British and Iran and should already have known about the ultimate futility of trying to control that country through a marionette monarch, and they charged in anyway. In Afghanistan in the 19th century, the British fought two wars that looked distressingly similar to the one we're just trying to wrap up now. And it's not as if this stuff isn't public knowledge. It's enough part of the zeitgeist that the Sicilian and the Princess Bride could joke about the difficulties of a land war in Asia. But whereas refusing to study or to apply the lessons of someone else's history is one thing, and that thing might be ignorance, or it might be hubris, or something else, failing to hang on to or to learn what your own history has to say seems to me to be another and particularly American failing. There are the times when we seem to actively work against what we already know. Even the most regressive school districts usually manage to teach that excessive deregulation of the banking system led directly to the Wall Street collapse in 1929 and the Great Depression. But through the 80s and 90s, we happily tore up the protections that we put in place under FDR, and within a decade, we got 2008 and the Great Recession. And today, half the country still fervently supports the party whose objective is to tear up Dodd-Frank, when the economy still hasn't come out of the hole we dug nine years ago. And there are times when we seem to have forgotten that there was anything to learn or to be concerned about in the first place. Researching for the Iran shows, I ended up buying a subscription to the New York Review of Books so I could get access to a series of articles that Emma Rothschild wrote in the 1970s about U.S. arms sales. To her and to the NYRB at the time, 
The way that U.S. arms manufacturers were destabilizing the developing world by distributing weapons and eroding democracy at home by using the proceeds from those sales to capture the Congress seemed like an existential threat. Today, it's a fact of life that we can barely be bothered to remember exists, let alone to care about or to fight against. And what I hope is becoming clear in the show, and admittedly it would be clearer if I could pick up the pace and do a dozen more countries, is that the history of U.S. foreign policy is the history of us shooting ourselves in the foot over and over again in a way that would be, if we stopped to read one of our own history books once in a while, totally predictable. But before you begin to think that this forgetfulness is just a part of human nature or that everyone is this way, I want to be very clear that it's not and they are not. When I spent a semester studying abroad, I was lucky enough to get to go to Berlin and to take a walking tour from an Australian historian come law student. And what you learn as you walk through that city with a little bit of guidance is that the Germans have made a determined and deliberate effort not to forget the events that marked their last century. Everywhere you go in the city, there is a little double trail of metal bricks. They're not ostentatious, but they're also impossible to ignore, and they mark crossing streets and sidewalks and empty lots where the Berlin Wall once stood. If you visit the German House of Parliament, the Reichstag, you'll notice it has a strange glass and steel globe for a roof, and you can go walk up there. Why? Well, Hitler came to power democratically, and since they had the opportunity to rebuild the building after the Nazis burned it down, they included the dome on top and its access to the public so that at any time that the parliament's in session, the legislators can look up and remember who they're really beholden to. The people. All of the people of Germany. If you take a walk through the square in front of the law faculty in Berlin, you'll see, in the very middle of the plots, a little window in the ground. And if you look through that window, you'll see a little room full of empty bookshelves. Why? Well, in a scene that you might remember from a historical film, or also from Indiana Jones, the smart young men who made up the most prestigious law school in Germany got together with the Nazi party in that square to hold the largest book burning in the country. And that room behind that window has just enough space on its shelves to hold every book they burned. The Germans haven't worried too much about using valuable real estate to build memorials. There's a plot in front of the Brandenburg Gate that hosts the U.S. and French embassies. It's some of the prettiest and most valuable land in the city. And just one block away is the Holocaust Memorial, a massive city block worth of black concrete monoliths that make it impossible for anyone, even if they were strayed in from the wilderness, not to know that something terrible happened there. So why is it that the Germans have remembered their history? And why is it, as they hold on doggedly to the distinction of being the only member of the European Union to welcome the hordes of refugees from Syria and the rest of the Middle East, that they have made the legacy of that history part of their national character, while we here in the United States have not? I think the answer is that it's a question of will. And that plays out, for the most part, through education. The first really modern state-sponsored education system grew up in France after the Revolution. And its goal was the same goal as all state-sponsored education afterwards, even if we've forgotten to admit it, which is propaganda. The architects of that original curriculum wanted to tell a story of France as one continuous and glorious historical line that ran from Charles Martel defeating the Muslims at the Battle of Tours in 732 through the glories of medieval and Renaissance France straight through to the Revolution and Napoleon. They wanted to create an idea of France in the mind of the student that was worth fighting and dying for, 
an idea of a historical mission that encapsulated all of French history and culture. And that idea, that French nationalist idea, is the idea that's in the minds of Marine Le Pen's novo fascist supporters now, the idea that they think is threatened by immigration and multiculturalism. And in the U.S., we've got a public education system that's the direct descendant of that original French one. We've got a glorious history that, while it begins with the Founding Fathers, we also intentionally link back to a longer tradition, beginning with Athens and running through to now. The idea that democracy existed in the way back when, and then disappeared, but that Washington and Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton got together to become its new torchbearers. We likewise had a historical mission, the nurturing of that democracy and civilization in the face of attacks by the British. Later, we learn about Manifest Destiny, where a teacher explains that people in the 19th century had this crazy idea, although in my experience, that teacher never explains why the idea was crazy or why we don't still believe it now, because we still do, that our God-given mission was to spread that democracy and civilization from sea to shining sea. Once we'd finished up with the dirty little Indian wars and wars of aggression against Mexico and Spain that were the only way to actually fulfill that historical mission, we move on to the 20th century and the natural outgrowth of public school manifest destiny, which is the United States taking its rightful place on the world stage. And it's indicative of the tone of the narrative that while the most important thing that the U.S. did before 1945 was probably sparking a worldwide depression in 1929, what we learn most about is how the U.S. came to the rescue of Europe in both world wars, even though we really came late to the first one that was already on its way to resolution, and that it was the Russians who won the second. Then the narrative changes again, and the U.S. becomes the stalwart defender of world freedom, no longer carrying that torch of democracy only within its own borders, but leading the free world against the Soviet menace, fighting the good fight up to 1989 and the collapse of the Berlin Wall. What I'm saying is that we're told a story, a very compelling story, about our history. It's a 240-odd-year myth whose central principle is that the United States is a force for good. But whereas that's bog standard for pretty much any country's publicly sponsored national myth, the U.S. goes one full step further. How many times in school did you hear or did you repeat that the United States was the greatest country in the world? How many times have you heard that in States of the Union, in stump speeches, and in political addresses? Have you ever thought about what it means? What if, in one of those classes, I'd been sitting next to you, and after the teacher said that, I said, yeah, and I'm the greatest kid in the world. Would that make more or less sense to you? There's a few things the U.S. is indisputably best at. We have a bigger military than anyone else, we've got more people per capita in prison than anyone else, and we've got the longest-running modern republic. But at what point does all of that, or any of that, logically add up to the greatest country in the world, and what does it mean about our national myth that that sentence isn't the mad raving it ought to be, but a closely held truth in the heart of almost every American. I'm trying to say it's a meaningless phrase. My parents worked in China when I was a kid, and I went to an international school. And on a kind of show-and-tell-about-your-country day, I couldn't think of anything to say except that America is the greatest country in the world. I hadn't lived in the States for years, and I'd left it as a toddler. But the one thing that I could remember was that it was the greatest and it was pretty poorly received by everybody else in the room. So while every school system has to pick a place on the spectrum between conformist and revolutionary education, and I've talked about that a lot in the Guatemala episode, 
And while pretty much every state that isn't operated by the revolutionary government falls on the far side of the conformist half, I think American education makes it actively difficult to metabolize information that doesn't fall within that guiding national myth. What you learn in school and from your parents and popular culture as a kid creates a kind of framework through which you interpret everything you've learned afterwards. And while in Germany, the framework they create seems to have a lot more room for conflicting ideas and viewpoints, the American version is particularly resistant and particularly intolerant of other views. I know, for example, that friends of my parents and parents of my friends have had pretty visceral negative reactions to my first couple of shows. The shows where I was, more than in any of the episodes afterwards, just laying out sets of facts and keeping my opinions to myself. Their reaction is to get a little bit nervous and a lot angry and to turn the program off. A few people I don't know also got on the internet to very aggressively tell me that I and my 30 or so sources were lying. So why is that? Now, framework was a word that I had a hard time wrapping my head around in college, so forget it. Imagine instead a model plane. When you were a kid and you were absorbing facts through what you read and what you saw, from The Longest Day and Hogan's Heroes and G.I. Joe, you were building up a little collection of model airplane parts. And when people explained history to you, in school or at church or on the History Channel when it still talked about anything but ancient aliens, they were writing a manual, a set of instructions that told you how all those little parts fit together. So as you grow up, you're building this little model airplane in your head, and every new fact makes it more complete, more solid, more immutable. And when you go to college or when somebody gives you a copy of Lies My Teacher Told Me, it's like when you open up a model or a puzzle and you get pieces that belong to a different airplane, a different puzzle. And your first and very natural reaction, when you've got an airplane that is already so solid and a manual that is already so thorough, is to get angry, to throw away those new pieces that don't fit. But even if you don't get angry, even if your manual is a little bit more permissive and you want to know what's up with those parts, you've got nowhere to put the new pieces. And I think that this is part of where our forgetting comes from. Without a plane, without a framework to attach them to, these new pieces go into the bin and eventually get lost altogether. Going a step further, even if you've hung on to a great many of those little pieces, say that you know about the anti-war movement in the 1960s, and you know about the Bush administration's ties to Halliburton, and you know that we were deceived by our government about the causes of the Iraq war, it's hard to put your disparate parts together into a cohesive plane to construct an alternative story about the history of the United States to the one that you hear in the news and in school. The myth at the center of our national consciousness is so powerful, the manual for our little model airplanes so convincing, that anything that falls outside of it is almost impossible to remember. And it's not just the foreign policy stuff that I go through on the show. We've known, for example, since at least Eisenhower's farewell address, that the military-industrial complex has been running the country. But because that complex falls beyond the scope of the democracy that we understand from our myth and our manual, we have a hard time keeping it in sight as we debate military spending from election to election. Likewise, we know from the Gilded Age that much of American history has been a battle between the wealthy and the poor. And even though Thomas Piketty laid bare that we're in another Gilded Age right now, because that situation falls beyond the problems we can address and solve in two or four year election cycles, it's tough to keep it in mind as we debate Trump's new health care or tax bills. This is a tough nut to crack, because writing your own manual is a Herculean effort. It might be a little bit easier if in college you were really well trained in a particular school of history, and I was not, but without that, you're pretty much on your own. 
I have got a lot of airplane parts kicking around in my head. I've got a binful, a shipping container worth of model bits, and I'm just barely beginning to see the outlines of the aircraft that they might add up to. That's me, and I spend 20 hours a week doing nothing but learning about the scummy underside of our history. And I, even before beginning this show, was already on the far fringe in terms of knowing what the national myth and manual wouldn't want us to know. But there is one thing, perversely, that gives me a little bit of hope. And it's conservatives right here in the U.S. I don't know if you've noticed, but the only people still building the standard plane with the standard manual these days are liberals. If you watched this last presidential election, Hillary Clinton was still talking about the greatest country in the world, and Donald Trump was the first successful presidential candidate in this nation's history who didn't toe that line. The problem, of course, is that the reason behind the lack of greatness that begat Trump's Make America Great Again are all totally backwards. Immigration and communism and a whole basket of half-lies and an entire mental universe of pure propaganda from conservative media from massive democratic pedophile rings to imaginary UN plans to God knows what else. That revolution in the conservative framework, in the planes and manuals that they're holding in their heads, has been premised on asking them to be dumber than they are. It's premised on asking you to turn your brain off and to accept a new, more terrifying view of the world than could or does exist. And the liberal alternative, the alternative based on truth, is always going to be harder it's always going to be harder to ask people to remember than to forget, to ask them to think rather than to listen and to obey. Conservative forces, repressive forces, are always going to be stronger than ours because they rely on fear and on hate and on violence. And when push comes to shove, the sword is almost always mightier than the pen. But that conservative madness is the first real crack in the facade, and there might be an opening now for the sane of us to start writing new manuals and building new, less beautiful, but more truthful planes. That alternative conservative narrative, the one in which Mexicans and college professors and Muslims and gay atheists are stealing America away from the heartland, now that it's taken root and begun to poison the collective consciousness of conservative America, has allowed unscrupulous politicians to do everything from giving away our electoral system to the wealthy and to corporations, to starting our two most recent foreign wars, to excusing Donald Trump's incredibly blatant corruption of the executive branch of our government, to allowing climate change to progress to the point where it's going to totally destroy the third world. That story that conservative Americans are telling themselves is like their new manual, their new mental framework. And when some Fox News commentator calls Barack Obama a Muslim or Donald Trump demonizes Iran, those new false tidbits of information, those new lies fit perfectly and never get questioned. Our new narrative, our still possible alternative to the nationalist story that we get told in school and to the apocalyptic one that Rush Limbaugh and thank God not Bill Riley anymore are selling would have the opposite effect. If we could resolve to know our own past, it would no longer be possible to elect a buffoon like Donald Trump for poor whites to blame poor blacks instead of Republican politicians for their problems, for us to jump blithely into another foreign war, or for us to keep demonizing the most vulnerable here at home or out in the wider world. We probably won't win this battle, and if we do, it's going to be a slog, a decades-long fight to forget forgetting and to begin remembering. 
But the only way to start is to start. And for me, it starts here with you. I'm John, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.